Alexa, play Tech Talks. Dave, what on earth are you doing? I'm, you know, interacting with my Amazon Alexa smart speaker to play our podcast. Wow. Yeah? Tell me more. Well, if you go onto the Alexa app on your phone, you can enable the skill and we can be in your bedroom or your kitchen or your living room. <laughs> Worrying. Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is a show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. Coming up on today's Tech Talks, we have Raj Shah from Opera Technologies. However, before that, hi Jack. Hello David. How are you? Yeah, not so bad, not so bad. Do you think the elderly should be allowed to drive? Oh, uh, maybe they should be like another test they have to take. I think you do I have know. to. I think you do have to pass a test now for a certain age. Do you? I mean, let's be honest. Um, the Duke of Edinburgh, age 96, 97, certainly shouldn't be going around in a Range Rover. 97? Yeah. Uh, put it on its side. It's kind of remarkable that he walked away from it unharmed, given he's 97. Yeah. And he does appear to be increasingly frail, because every now and then we yeah. find out that he's been in hospital. Yeah, but he managed to put it on its side, but walked away unharmed. It's it's crazy. Uh yeah, he's a bit like Teflon at the moment, isn't he? <laughs> One thing I will say, right, whatever you think about the Royal Family, um, a few years ago when we had the, was it the Diamond Jubilee, when we had the Flotilla? Oh, yeah, 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 something like that. I don't know the exact stone of Anyway, Jubilee, the, the last Jubilee yeah. that we had with the Flotilla, it was a horrendous day. It just right. tipped it down the entire day. And Hayley at the time was, was uh, renting a flat near... Well, opposite St. Catherine's Docks. Oh, nice. And the Queen was at St. Catherine's Docks on a platform watching all the boats go by. And she stood there for hours. Really? Hours. I mean, she's in her 90s. Yeah. And just stood stationary, observing all these boats going past. No break. And it's like, that's nuts. Like, I'd struggled to stand for that length of time. And Philip Philip was next to her. And it's again uh, in November when they had the... um, the 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 armistice celebrations so, yeah yeah or armistice commemorations celebrations commemorations anyway. salutations <laughs> okay uh, and the princess royal was um, at the horse guard parade saluting for hours Just like, what, what the hell it. do they do to these royals to allow them to be able to stand they've got bio, they've got um, exoskeletons do you reckon there's a back. tech solution going on they, they've got that standing chair thing that I found you know where you just sort of slightly hunch down and chair legs come out you know you can't see it under a big skirt so that's my, that's my theory it's a similar thing to those uh, kind of those fake levitating people around Covent Garden. Yes, like, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly that. That's what the, that's what the Queen's using to prop herself up all day. Really, she sat there and yeah. we think, "Wow, look at her stoic, stoic, whatever nope. stoic, stoic, stoic." <laughs> yes, that's it. Stoic, <laughs> stoic. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't want to send her to Stoke. No. Um, I uh, yeah, I just you know, I wondered. I I, I wondered if. if Philip should really be allowed to drive less. I suppose well, if, he's, if he's capable, yes, he should. But 97? I don't think it's his fault. I think it's like whoever was... I don't know if he's being kept under watch or, you know, or his security, but someone should have said, sure, Phil, 
You sure about this? You sure you're going to get in? Oh, he's gone already. He's 60 miles an hour off. Maybe he's sat watching the crown and he's like, hell yeah, I, I look good driving sports cars around and things. Yeah. I'm going to go for a drive. Yeah. I maybe, mean, maybe the crown's kind of re enlivened his younger passions. Without being nasty, I think he'd watch the crown and he probably wouldn't even recognise that it was a younger version of him, to be honest. He's 97 years old. He, bless him. <laughs> Sorry if that sounds patronising, but I mean, I'm just. Going on, I don't know. We, we tend to be, you know, yeah. let's face it, we tend to be fairly patronising to old people. Yes. I don't know, yes. again, I don't know why, when that happens. Like, do you get over like 75 and start getting patronised? It's because, yeah, it's, because, it's, it's, it's a two way street, isn't it? Old people patronise the youth and the youth condescend almost older people. With good reason at times. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right, we will switch our focus to today's interview. Mm. It is with Raj Shah. Um, he is from Okra Technologies. Uh, they are based in Cambridge. They're an AI platform working uh, heavily with the pharma industry. Hope you enjoy this interview. Loads of really interesting points here. Uh, stick with us. Afterwards, we'll be picking over some of those points. And then we will uh, have a couple of articles to share with you in the second part of the show. So we are joined by Raz, or rather I've come up to Okra in Cambridge, which is good fun because, I don't know, it feels appropriate to come out to a, an AI medical business and, and be kind of in one of those hubs that everyone talks about as being a centre of science and innovation. Absolutely. Well, uh, most recently I heard uh, that we're the Silicon Valley of Europe, actually, from yeah. Cambridge, which I smiled about a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, we're surrounded here by a huge number of tech companies, specifically AI companies. A lot of success out of Cambridge, also some controversy, you know, we've, yeah. we've heard about some companies in Cambridge, but it's a great place. So very quickly, in case someone isn't familiar with Okra Technologies, who are Okra? And as Chief Revenue Officer here, what's your role? My role uh, to start with as Chief Revenue Officer, it's a long title. Uh, it's essentially to, to, to manage the relationships and drive uh, what, what I call it as the adoption of AI in the pharmaceutical industry. It really is to engage pharma on this on this journey, the changing the mindset, how to adopt AI, and uh, what will be the value of this technology for them in their workflows. Will it impact revenue? Will it drive down costs, wastage, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, and what Okra is doing, um, you know, we position ourselves absolutely as a technology company, an artificial intelligence company, machine learning company focused on providing this industry, the pharmaceutical industry, with evidence-based foresight in real time. There are two, there are two factors here. So one is, is there an appetite for pharma to sh firstly share their data with a vendor like us? Mm. Um, so that's the first critical question that we had to, had to address and understand because data privacy, where is it being held? Yep. Uh, how are you going to use it? What, what type of algorithms do you have? Are you a black box? Are you not? Where's your level of transparency? Once we've addressed that, when you start combining it with third-party data or public data, what does that mean? You know, why would you look at weather or deprivation or demographic data uh, or risk scores that are publicly available or national statistics that are available uh, on public websites? And that's for us to be able to give them new insights, new foresight, new information that perhaps today they were not able to, to derive, but also at a speed that they weren't able to derive. So that's looking at a, at a company individually. Now the idea would be, or the ideal scenario would be that actually we connect the dots across the ecosystem. So whether you've got you know, hospitals involved, you've got um, clinicians involved, you've mm. got insurers involved, and you've got the pharmaceutical industry involved, if they were willing to sit together and create a, a, a way of connecting these dots uh, with a provider like us, that would be the ultimate way to, to really enable us to drive the outcomes that 
you know, patients in today's world should, should have access to. Is there some reticence from the pharmaceutical industry to, to adopt AI and data practices? I mean, we all know that healthcare is heavily regulated and there is some, some risk aversion there. And there is a big public education piece around people's own personal data being shared, which might make some companies slightly nervous about being involved in, well, we all saw how Streams was, was portrayed in the, in the press a few years ago. Um, where are we at on that, on that kind of journey of getting people to the point where they go, no, this is something that we have to be doing? Yeah, I think there's been a big shift over probably the last six to 12 months, actually. So I think there is reticence, but I don't think it is because individuals don't see the value in it. I think mm. it's more of an understanding of where can we first apply it in order to understand how, do, how it works, what are the frameworks we need to follow, how do we share this data, what are the outputs, um, what value is this adding to our business? So there are a lot of questions which are valid questions, business mm. questions that you would need to answer, uh, but they're underpinned probably by this, uh, this illusion that there is a black box underneath all of this and are we really going to get the transparency from from an individual vendor uh, that, that we require as an evidence-based industry in a gold standard way of treating patients is is very open it's very public with pa- you know, uh, papers being published about methodology and so on and so forth so what we've seen is that that, that companies are doing one of two things either they're trying to uh, build internal capabilities and, and experiment internally within kind of the confines of their own organization um, or they're looking at uh, companies like ours uh, to say, look, um, you, know, you know, quotes from the likes of CEO of Novartis who have positioned you know, entrepreneurs and startups as the vanguard of health mean that they're more willing to say, you know, what is your technology? How do you believe you can add value to what we're doing? Where do you believe we should try this initially to, so that we can understand a little bit more? You can educate us a little bit more on your methodology, your algorithms, your validation process, your your outputs because essentially what we're not doing is consulting we're not going in on a one-off and saying here's a solution to some of the problems or questions you have that is a very what i believe is a very old-fashioned way to do it now it's how do we deploy a system that can answer those questions a system that can learn that can understand that can stay in this organization that can automate for example outcome prediction you know a lot of the times information is lost uh, because people move uh, so inherently, there's no transfer of knowledge. Uh, costs the industry a lot of a lot of money, uh, and a lot of the tasks are repeated every year. Um, the idea is AI can change that, change that for the in, in internal part of the organisation, but also externally if we can get to the point of care with uh, with patients and healthcare practitioners involved. Just moving away from AI for a second, I'm sure we'll come back to it. But I, I, I read a stat that suggested that the um, health tech industry was worth around 43 billion pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a very lucrative market and interesting that you know the, the startup scene, the health tech scene has been described as the vanguard of that, that industry. If you were talking to interested entrepreneurs who wanted a slice of that pie, what learnings have you got from partnering with those large organizations that does and doesn't work? You said there that the, you know, they don't want to necessarily just have another consulting team come in, what, what messages do resonate when you're trying to work with a large farmer? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the, the golden question. I think my learnings have kind of accumulated over many years. I think the, the partnership model for pharma is, is, is new. Uh, I don't think it's uh, like other industries where they've probably um, 
you know, partnered a lot earlier on. Uh, I think the, the, the focus on this technology has meant that there has been a, a willingness to, mm. to, to, to create, where we first partnered with, with a global organization is they created a competition. Yeah, invite the, 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 the startups, the, the guys with the budding ideas on into a platform, show us what you have, how can you add value to our organization? Uh, how can you do it at speed? How can you show us that um, we are able to do something that we're not doing today? Um, um, and that th those platforms that have been created, incubators, innovation groups, competitions, etc., were, were for me kind of initially. I thought you know this is just the farmer industry, you know, trying to be something it's not. But post winning some of these competitions, we've seen the real appetite to really try to understand now what these new technologies have to offer, mm. the willingness to say, actually, let's not do this in-house. Let's partner because if we're going to fail, we're going to fail quickly. If we're going to fail, we're going to fail and not have spent that much money. But if we succeed with these smaller companies, we will build together with them. We will collaborate with them. We'll start to build the frameworks, the governance, around what we're trying to achieve together with them. So what we are are deep domain experts in AI and machine learning. Um, personally, I've been in the pharma industry for, for a number of years, so I also know the data quite well and worked in some of these consulting roles. So we bring that level of expertise, both from a data and tech piece, but what we are not experts in is what these companies themselves are doing mm. uh, in, in terms of drug discovery, in terms of launch excellence, in terms of treating patients and so on and so forth. So we need to bring the tech arm together with the expertise of pharma and say, where's your problem? Where can we add value? Let's try it, try it quickly. If we succeed, we succeed very quickly. So don't make it a long and laborious process. Don't create a lot of barriers to entry with your pricing. Don't create a lot of uh, barriers, even from, a f from the pharmaceutical view with your contracts and your uh, long procurement processes. You know, this is now for pharma a chance to get vendors in to sandbox it, let's, let's you know, sandboxing is, is quite a, a normal term in the financial services place, but bring that to pharma, let's act quickly, let's give data, let's share it, let's have it in confined parameters, let's understand what the questions are and what the output should be, and let's execute very quickly, and we can build a system and answer questions within 12 weeks. Pharma cannot do that. Mm. They, they might want to, and I'm sure that it's been an appetite for years, but by partnering with organizations who can do that at speed, they learn very quickly. And when it does work, at scale. Why should we why should we wait? I can think of personal circumstances within my family where they go to the doctors, doctor tells them one thing, they go on Google, loads of information, yeah. a lot of it could be misinformation. They go, oh well, XYZ person over here who's a doctor and look, they're they're published and they say X and that fits what I yes. want it to fit. And all of a sudden the dynamic between between patient and doctor is changing because people have access to a huge amount more information than they ever had. Mm -hmm. But correctly deciphering what's helpful information and what's bad information isn't exactly easy for the patient. And we can see it with the, the conversations around statins uh, in the press in the last few weeks where there seems to be a small camp who are very anti-statin and, and, and a large part of the medical community going, this could, be a this could be a health disaster because a lot of people are stopping taking, taking statins where they should be taking them. Does AI help give credibility back to the medical industry? Because not that they've lost credibility, but I, I suppose it's something else in their armory that they can turn around to patients and go, look, we've got a handle on, this, on these huge data sets. It's not just me sitting here 
from one person, one doctor's perspective where I may have only seen a symptom once or twice, but I'm yeah. in a network of wider health professionals? No, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I think um, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, both by um, us as, as tech companies to validate what it is we do, validate our outputs, validate our algorithms, work harder with um, not just pharma, but also uh, perhaps clinicians on, on publications, um, you know, uh, looking at the transparency around what data sets are we using, the mm. ethics around where they've come from, then the methodology, and then how have we blind tested this, and the output then to recommend something in real time, such as a diagnosis or a treatment, what does that, what does that, how have we got there? And I think that that is what will drive more trust, certainly from a physician perspective, to be able to incorporate this into, into daily, daily practice. Um, moving on from that, um, I think there's a lot of work being done by a lot of organizations, uh, but still the, the data sharing is probably uh, a limiting factor in, mm. uh, in how, you know, how can we connect all the dots to, to, to make sure that when we, when we go through that process, there isn't a big part of the data that's not been involved in it because that's also then not fair on the actual system itself to, to say, okay, try and derive this, but actually we're not going to give you a big part of the patient data that exists that's sitting out there. But if we get more clinicians involved, if we get pharma involved, if there's tech companies involved, we join that ecosystem, insurers involved, everybody brings their piece. The, the, the goal has to be the same. You know, is the goal to, 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 to provide better treatment for patients, diagnose them faster, reduce the cost and the burden on something like the NHS? Or, because if we're not aligned on there, it's very difficult then to, to, to try and achieve um, kind of a mutually, a, a goal that's mutually beneficial for, for everybody involved. So I, I suppose an interesting point then is where you have patients involved, they, people, the general population, when you talk about AI, are slightly scared maybe maybe in the mainstream press they read stories where ai is this kind of armageddon style <laughs> scenario um do you think that companies you mentioned there are a number of companies working in this space do you think that companies like say babylon who probably are the most visible yeah. from from a public point of view because they have been featured on the bbc and they have uh, i suppose been front runners for the last couple of years in this space have they been helpful to the rest of the industry in the way that mm -hmm. Uh, they have been reported upon? Yeah, so it's, a, it's a very good question. I think, I, well, personally, I've got a lot of admiration for, for, for Babylon um, because if you look at their concept, it's about you know, giving access to everybody uh, who perhaps in the past wouldn't have access to a doctor mm. immediately. And if you look at their work in Rwanda and places like that, this is, this is fantastic. And you know, it says something like by 20, 2020 or maybe a bit further on that 50% of the UK population will be treated virtually. So I think everything they're doing is fantastic. Where you have, where I have the problem is uh, the media's portrayal of AI, right? So we do a lot of great things. There's a lot of great things happening with AI and machine learning in terms of, you know, even our own premises is to save and improve human lives, to drive outcomes. That is what we're doing. Along that journey, our mistakes will be made. Uh, that's inevitable with any emerging technology. And anytime you do a proof of concept, you're essentially learning, you're changing parameters, you're applying new data, you're understanding prediction accuracy, ROC curves, and so on and so forth. We're not going to have the answer on the first POC. Mm. Now, it is the media's responsibility, journalists' responsibility, individuals like the BBC who then create these programs that the public will watch because the public are not going to read The Lancet or the BMJ 
or the, or the, the medical scientific journals, which will give you the, the full methodology and framework yeah, of, how, of how the study has come about. Um, and that's where I think we or, or, or our media have a huge part to play in, in how it's perceived. Because at the moment, you've got this Armageddon-type uh, Terminator type. We're going to be taken, taken over the world. But, you know, more jobs will be created by AI. That's a fact, right? There'll be jobs that our kids will be doing in ten to fifteen years' times that are not even that don't even exist right now. Um, job satisfaction will inevitably go up because, as humans, are we designed to, to to sit and delve into the data all day and look at screens, or has this become um, a byproduct of the amount of data we've created over the last five to ten years, just because of you know that data is now there and we have to analyze it? But if we mm. can stop these or prevent repetitive tasks and automate some of the, the more mundane aspects of your life uh, so that you can focus, like marketers should be focused on their engagement of their audience, not looking at data on how to engage and so on and so on and so on. And sales guys, you know, if we can predict who to see, how to target them, what type of contact, what type of message, could we automate a lot of their day so that they're just focused on what they love to do, which is having these conversations. So. There are probably a lot of things that are happening within AI that the general public don't know about. The other thing I think is every day, a lot of people are engaged with AI machine learning based products that they just don't know about, right? Yeah, of course. So, so Netflix, it's an example that I hear a lot. Every time you see a score or you're recommended an, a movie after a movie, this, this, is, this is your exposure to machine learning and AI. Um, so there are probably Siri, there is Google finishing off your sentence, you know, very simple examples that I'm sure everybody's experienced, but haven't tangibly put it, brought it back to technology and what other companies are now trying to do, mm. but for them, for their personal health or their well-being, or for businesses and their uh, brands and their products and, and sales and revenue. So I think more positive stories. When there is a negative story, it tends to hit the front pages more than the positive stories. Um, so probably more responsibility for, for, for journalists to engage with companies like us, not just us, but many others on the positive stuff. I'll give you an example. We are currently working on a, on a project which um, will allow intervention um, earlier on for children in care. So there's a child in, put into care every 22 minutes in the UK. There are about 65,000 kids in care amongst 55,000 carers. So there's already a disproportionate number of children to carers. Now what happens is when you put a child in care with a carer, there are incidents that might happen, there's a carer experience, and there's many other variables at play. But disruption means the child is pulled out and placed with somebody else. This has right. a massive effect. So our um, approach to this was, can we predict ahead of time placement breakdown? More importantly, can we answer why? And can we intervene earlier to prevent that breakdown from happening in the first place? We've, we've run the data, we've, we've uh, blind tested it, we've validated it, and it's something that we presented recently at the uh, Health and Outcomes Conference called ISPOR uh, in Spain, and it was received phenomenally because this is real-world data, real-world scenarios, a real-world application for good of children. So, into, you know, I say, you know, are we saving children's lives in real time? Is that what we're doing? In a very extreme way, we could we could position it like that, right? But it, it, essentially, if that child remains in a stable house for longer, can we measure the outcome then that that child will have? Maybe in schooling, maybe 
we don't know yet if there will be a correlation between the two, but if we can just prevent disruption for now, then we've had a massively positive impact. Now, that should be on the front page of the news. A tech for good stories to finish on. Look, I really appreciate you giving up some time and talking to me. Uh, thank you. I hope it continues to go well here in Cambridge. Great. Thank you for your time. Not everyone who listens to Tech Talks is from the UK. Yep. So I might need to explain this, but I did find it kind of darkly, not maybe not darkly, but, but somewhat ironic that Cambridge is being described as the Silicon Valley of Europe, given it's incredibly flat. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Um, I thought you were going to go with a really sort of pseudo-political angle on Cambridge Analytica and how can this be? This? But no, geography. Geography. Yeah, if yeah, anyone's yeah. not been to uh, the east of England or certainly East Anglia, it's as flat as a pancake. It's a beautiful city though, Cambridge. It oh, really yeah, it's is. The Corn Exchange is lovely there as well. I'd recommend anyone going there. Yeah. Um, look, I thought it was really interesting because there were, there were several points here that follow on from actually a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about with Dr. Hannah Allen, obviously, at Babylon because we, we name-checked Babylon in this interview. Allegorical, that was, Dave. The first time we've ever had a podcast interviewer mention a previously interviewed person. Yeah, you might be right, actually. Right. Um, uh, but also, a lot of the points that were made by Rachel uh, from Dot Everyone, I think, were echoed there. Yeah. Um, and I th- thought that it was very interesting that he was talking um, about the need for the industry to come together, for the, for, the, for the kind of the dots to be joined up between clinicians and pharma and the tech companies yep. and to all work towards a shared goal. Yes. Um, when Rachel talks about the fact that um, innovation had been generally more responsible in fintech because of the presence of regulation that forced those organizations to work to, together. Yeah. She also mentioned that health tech is a bit of the Wild West yeah. in, in, in the tech sense. But Raz was articulately um, describing the fact that to validate data sets, to make sure that clinicians are making the best of artificial intelligence, mm. they need to work together. They need to work together with the farmers. Exactly. And therefore, we will get that 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 more responsible outcome for society as a whole from this technology? For me, um, the, the, the commonality, the, the shared goal is incredibly important. Now, I wanted to pick up on the fact that I think pharma as an industry has taken a true beating over the last 10 to 15 years. I think with good reason. Yeah, because people like Martin Kelly, the horrible, horrible pharma <laughs> bro. Yeah, I don't. Uh, if I'm mispronouncing his name, I don't apologise to him. It's normally me, um, you anyway. <laughs> but this bloke is a nasty piece of business. A, he bought the only version of a Wu Tang Clang album and uh, let no one else have it. B, he um, he's best known for his aggressive defence of raising the price of Daraprim, a 62-year-old drug primarily used to treat newborns and HIV patients. Now he he increased that from thirteen dollars fifty to $750 a pill, mm. right? Which is, I don't even know how much of an increased hike of percentages that is, it's mental. But I think the same way that like Facebook was taking a massive hit with data and Cambridge Analytica, pharma needs to do a lot more for people to see them in a positive light. Because especially in the US mm-hmm. where you pay an obscene amount of money for healthcare in general and an obscene amount of money for drugs, I think the, the, the points that... Um, that Raz makes is is about a shared goal and commonality. And in the UK, it's a bit easier. In the US, I think it's a bit harder. But, you know, until until startups really can change the, almost the perception of farm, I think, well, I, I think trust it, and data collation is going to be really mm, hard for that. I mean, the, the tricky thing is, industry. 
is that if you are a tech company seeking to change the healthcare industry, yeah. you can work with the NHS and you can work with clinicians, yes, but big drug companies are a big part of that sector. They are, they are. <laughs> and, and, and they often probably are the gatekeepers to a lot of change across the sector. And they can afford to purchase real nice technology as well, right? Whereas, you know, the NHS might not. Yeah. It's I, a horrible cycle that... How did you feel about when he was describing, you know, the best way to partner with them is to uh, show, you know, have as, have as low barrier as you possibly can, uh, kind of, of entry for the farmer and getting in the sandbox and collaborating. Yeah. Normally, I'm like, yeah, great. But I was also like, God, I hope that doesn't just mean that they're going to just nick that technology, but then price other people out of the market. You I know, mean, I, I know it's a positive message, but there's no, that, that, there right. is that kind of, ooh, is that, is I that mean, best? We always see innovation being swallowed up by big companies, sometimes for good, sometimes for better. You know, I was reading this morning that Microsoft are opening AI, VR, AR hubs in China, which I think is a good thing. There's a lot of uh, good technology in China that you know isn't shared with the rest of the world. But then, oh, you also hear stories of like Walmart, like the, the people that own Asda, uh, buying up innovation hubs out in the states mm. just because, just so that their pet competitors don't get to it first, sort of thing, and not really utilizing. It. I mean, one thing Walmart have done really well is they've made a fantastic TV advert that I recommend everyone watch. Um, but yes, yeah, is that is that the car? The one? car one, yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah, really it's good. good. Um, but it's it, it is, and, and, and Raz is right. But it does it does hark back to those kind of points, especially when you're after funding for startups. Don't go for the low hanging fruit. And I think pharma can offer people a lot of money quickly, and a lot of money, and a, you know, a, and a big space to work in. But you know, are they going to outprice the tech like they outprice the medication? <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's not a critique of the of the companies in, in that space. I think the problem is they have to work with pharma. So yes. It's, so it's it's yeah. it's making it's making those partnerships true partnerships. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. And it's reforming the industry from within from within. Um, Which I believe Okra will and can be doing, especially yes. in the UK. But I don't think we have as massive farmer issue in the UK as they, as we do in the states. And yeah. you, you know, US listeners, tell us how bad it is, please. One thing that I do also find very interesting when we talk about health tech and we talk about AI, um, and it relates, I suppose, to that, is data being commercialised? Is it transparent? Is this this black box concept that we just have the, heard a couple of times? Yeah, ago. to do with aeroplanes, the black box, you know, if it all goes wrong, the black box tells you everything. Yeah, or but, in your car and... You yeah, blah, blah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but in this, in this situation, it being, or is all of that data going into a black box that's not transparent? All about me. Yeah, all, yeah, all about yeah, the yeah, company yeah, that's harvesting yeah, yeah, that yeah, data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. And it'd be, it would have been, it would be really interesting actually to go to someone like Dot Everyone and go, yeah, what's what's the solution here? Because these companies are obviously collating huge amounts of data. Yeah. But you have to make sure that that data is there and readily available and shared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the pharma companies aren't going to necessarily want to share all of their effectively intellectual property with everyone. Yeah, why would they? You know? So it's it's getting that balance between public and private data and making sure that that's used in a in a in a positive way. I, and look, that's not it's, this is a half baked bit of commentary from me, but I'd love someone from within the industry to kind of talk about how 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 black boxes can be opened up and used positively for the industry as a whole. Because you can you can just see the amount of good 
that data share would do. Of course. And also, equally, how catastrophically bad that data could be mismanaged and missold. And I suppose also when you're, when you're a startup, there's that, that, there's that tension, isn't there, between you've developed a, a technology and you, you have the intellectual property and you want to keep that intellectual property because you work really hard for it. Of course it Versus actually sharing technology will help the industry as yeah. a whole, will help you innovate, will help you grow, will help the overall sector. Um, but guess what? Then you just become an extension of a big pharma company. I mean, which is fine. Yeah, but if you, if you focus so much on your intellectual property, it might stop you actually innovating and yep. pushing yourself forward because yep. you're not sharing ideas. Uh, it's... I mean, I'm glad I'm not in this cycle because it's a it's a head scratcher. It's a doozy, if you will. Yeah. Um, but I mean, b- before we break, uh, we've got to talk about the media again because Raz really does uh, verbalise it rather yeah. well. You know, negative stories. There's that stories. wonderful positive story at the end. Yeah. I mean, my God, what was it? It was um, about what they're doing their new service for uh, allowing earlier intervention uh, on ch- children in care. Yeah. I mean. Yet we're we're hearing about one rogue Tesla car running someone down, which is awful. Don't get me wrong, but we're not hearing about new tech company allows eighty percent of Kenya to meet doctors via Babylon Healthcare. Rwanda. We're not hearing about Okra, you know, trying to implement AI machine learning. We're hearing about the one rogue case. Yeah, or, or for that matter, I was at a, at a conference recently, uh, CIO Water Cooler, where I yep. was where I was in, uh, hearing about the Prince's Trust using AI. Um, and natural language processing to help save the lives of people on the edge of, of committing suicide. They recog- they'd recognise the triggers when they're chatting to a chatbot and then can step in and, and, and intervene if needed. God. But we don't hear about those. No. Things. And as Raz says, you know, often the technology is at a proof of concept stage and I think the media needs to be more patient. Yeah, yeah, that is so true because every startup, even like any startup, any business, any organisation makes mistakes in its infancy. Yeah. We, as human beings, make mistakes in our infancy. The first thing we do when we start gaining sentience is put everything in our mouth because we want to taste it. We want to know what it feels like and stuff like that. This is age one to two. People make mistakes early on in every form of whatever you want to call it. So it seems bad that the press would jump on one, two, three mistakes being made when there's 50 bazillion stories (laughs) out there that are positive about tech. So my, my point was... Read up more on Okra Babylon and listen to this show more. Because we we'll only tell you good things about tech. That brings us to the end of part one. Um, hey, Jack, we got through that without any Ladyfingers jokes. Ah, yeah, we did, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or Dahl jokes, because I, I, I put Okra in my Dahl. There we go. Yeah. Um, but stick with us. <laughs> uh, after this break, we'll be back with a couple of articles. So, Jack, are you getting over the January blues? Have you got New Year's resolutions? Uh, no to both. Well, two books that might be able to help you come up with some, some targets for the new year. Yeah. The Art of Life Admin by Elizabeth Emmons. Okay. Available on Audible. That's a new release. And The World's Fittest Book by Ross Edgley, uh, the cover of which will shame you into the gym. It's a very really? good man. Ah, uh, they might have used an old stock photo of me for that then. I don't think so. No. He's about three jacks wide. Wow. Yeah, but there are new releases on Audible that might help you ease into the new year in a positive frame of mind. I'll give them a go. It's time for part two of the show. Part of the show where we share some articles. Um, who wants to go first? Well, I do. Okay. <laughs> You're right in there. Yeah, no, it's just because I've got the tab on my phone. <laughs> um, now, I was going to talk about uh, Spotify's new CarView app. but CarView? So basically, via Bluetooth... It was really hard to change songs on your phone when it's 
sat up in the car and now they've made basically made a big screen with a forward pause and rewind button it's a boring story but it's good if you drive we don't drive next so maybe that was what was going wrong with philip yeah 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 he, <laughs> he was trying to change from uh was it the proms 2001 <laughs> to the proms 2000 i don't know don't make don't make you know just what do you reckon he was listening to he might be listening to slipknot nwa yeah yeah maybe um, anyway so i wanted to just pick up and it's it's pretty wide stream news and i'm just very excited it's not really that tech to be honest with you, dave but netflix is creating its own space force tv program based on donald trump's idea of forming a space <laughs> army um, and it's starring Steve Carell, right. everyone's favourite. And it's also being written by people uh, who wrote the American version of The Office. Um, Greg Daniels, who was one of the main, main writers of it, and Howard Klein. Um, so in December, Trump ordered the creation of Space Command, a move labelled by the administration as a precursor to the creation of US Space Force. A sixth was, was branch of the armed forces. Can I jump in? Wasn't, yeah, yeah. wasn't, wasn't their tagline like Mars awaits? Yeah, there was that. That was on the badge, but wasn't we've, it? We've yeah. already had a load of stuff about Mars. Come on, TV execs. It's like, you know, again, you're sucking that well yeah, of creativity. Sure. No, 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 no. Sure, 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 sure. But this is very much a comedy, right? Like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think, I mean, Lost in Space, the film, was a comedy because it was that bad. Yes. But <laughs> And it wasn't Mars. No, <coughs> but no. Um, Vice President uh, Mike Pence has said they aim to stand up the United States Space Force before the end of 2020. So we'll get the TV program before we get the actual um, initiative, if you could call it that. I don't know. But it's just, it's really exciting. Fantasy? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, really exciting news for someone like me who loved the American version of The Office, who's got Netflix and so on and so forth. But it's just the fact that um, they're already uh, parodying Something that's not happened yet oh, just got, shows you how oh, weird yeah, Trump is, in right? In a few years' time, though, are we just going to be kind of like on Twitter? It's going to be like, you know, just him tweeting away, talking about how wonderful he is because he's been creative enough to come up with this idea that's led to like probably something that'll be wildly successful. We'll never get bloody rid of him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he will be the only, he, he would be the kind of person that is like Beck in Futurama where he lives on forever because he keeps his head in a glass. And like remains alive. Just on this point, uh, I saw something on Twitter that was utterly hilarious. As we're talking about Trump, um, and you know he's probably a fan of conspiracy theories. <laughs> go on Twitter uh, to the account at Casa underscore Para with a double R, so C A S A underscore P A double R A. Yep. There's a whole thread on this ridiculous conspiracy theory about a book written by a guy called Baron Trump in the 18 or 1700s about a time traveler right no yeah and apparently tesla was someone as in the actual tesla Tesla was someone who was looking at advanced technology for the u.s government back in like the 30s and there was rumors that he had a time traveling machine this is the 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 film the christian bale film (laughs) and that fell into the hands of donald trump's grandfather oh write the script now come on and the picture on Baron Trump's marvellous underground journey even looks like Baron Trump. I mean, it's not a million miles away, is it? I mean, he's an Arsenal fan, Baron Trump, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, he obviously, he, he's always wearing an Arsenal kit or something. Look at this thread. It's hilarious. It just everything lines up somewhere. It's got screenshots from all over the internet. It's, it's well worth a read whilst we're talking about Donald Trump and whatever else. Yeah. Anyway. Back David onto. Bowie's portrayal of Nikolai Tesla in what is the film I'm thinking of? My favorite, one of my favorite, the, the magician film. 
from Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Michael Caine. Prestige? The Prestige, that's exactly it. Um, yeah, David Bowie's portrayal of Nikola Tesla in that film is stunning. My article. Yes. Getting back to technology. <laughs> yeah, we probably should, shouldn't we? Have you heard of Squad? No. Well, I have the word, but not probably what you're about Squad, to... Squad, um, the app, is apparently set to be the next teen sensation. Why would of... I have heard of that then, Dave? Come on. <laughs> because, you know... You're... I have a younger sister who's actually 14, so... Yeah. You know, and... She might be squatting. reasonably young still. Yeah, I am actually, yeah. Yes. yes. Um, apparently, it makes it easier to do nothing together. So with oh, Squad... Right. You fire up a video chat with up to six people, but at any time you can screen share what you're seeing on your phone instead of showing your face. You can browse memes together, trash talk about DMs um, or private profiles, brainstorm a status update, co-work on a project, or get... Yeah, because of course that's what they're going to be doing. They're yeah, going to be co-working on, on their phones. Yeah, all right. Or get consensus on your, twi- on your Tinder swipe. Yeah, good point. Deceptively simple, but remarkably alluring... And it couldn't have happened until now. So basically, Squad, they're taking advantage of... um, Team Viewer ID, as we call it here at work. Replay kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For screen sharing. It was was announced in 2015. It wasn't until June June 2018, iOS 12, that it became stable and easy enough to build. Um, And it's going to obviously be taking advantage of speedy um, upcoming 5G networks. Because obviously, six video chats at once if you're going to be screen sharing. Um... Faintly terrifying, uh, showing a huge amount of ability to their multitask. Yeah, I would just be like, I'd be too worried. I've left a nefarious tab open and then I'm sharing my screen with five of my <laughs> friends. And yeah, I don't, I don't think screen sharing would work with us anymore. We'd just be a bit. It'd be a bit slow and a bit. Sorry, I was making a cup of tea. I missed that. Yeah, can you just uh, go back ten minutes? I mean, I mean this is. I think this will, this will kick off though. I think this is. Um, it's it's not the worst idea I've ever heard. I think this is, you know, I, I can't get inside the mind of a Gen Z person, but I know that they love their apps as much as we do. So yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think it's got legs. I mean, uh, what I find really interesting about this, the article's taken from TechCrunch, apparently only launched the app last week, but uh, there are claims that droves of Facebook and Snap employees have signed up to <laughs> spy on it and, and copy. Oh, wait. You're, that's such a good point. If they're going to sell all of this data to people like that showing our behavioural active... Mind you, they can get that from Apple anyway, can't they? But that's worrying. They can literally have a live stream of what we're doing. But then they can anyway. What am I talking about? I mean, it's, it's faintly sad. Like, Go on. you're only going to be doing this probably with, with people that... You, you know, if you're a teenager, it's probably going to be your school friends. Yep. Like... But just I think go around each other's houses for no, God's that's, sake. That's a good point. That is a good just point. Just go around each other's fucking houses. Yeah. If there's six of you and you want to hang out together, don't do it on a phone screen. No, but you know that's the way the modern world's going. You know. Oh, I, I sound so old, don't I? No, well, <laughs> you're, you're, you're borderline sounding like a baby boomer, like because I remember seeing a photo years ago, and it was like one old person, older person, was moaning about the fact that he got on the tube, and everyone was looking at their mobile phone. Rewind 50 years, that same photo of someone on the tube, everyone's reading a newspaper. But still doing the same thing. Still doing exactly the same thing. But they would have been reading a newspaper, so they wouldn't have been interacting with people around them anyway. They're just. Exactly. I mean, that's just. It's just size and and space sensitive. My point being, you don't sound as bad as those people. Okay. But I I can. I I mean, for me, I guess the the, the immediate thing this this had um, benefits for was like, I remember at uni 
doing like group projects and no one had any time for it at the same time. So people would like FaceTime, uh, not even FaceTime, was about Skype each other. Like one person's at home, one person's at college, and then like sharing. Oh, I, I get that, but it should it be, a, be it should be a last that, resort. But... And yeah, 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 yeah this yeah, thing yeah. where they talk about collaborating on project. It's really... Tinder. This is going to be used for Tinder. Should I swipe left or right on this one? What do you think, guys? Yeah. Uh, the CEO apparently is someone called Esther Crawford. Um, how old are you, Jack? 26. So people under 24 do video chat in a different way to people 25 and above, oh, she says. shit, man. Mate, you, you are cut off. How I do video chat, or as we call it in my family, shout time, because you literally are shouting at the phone. <laughs> Is that because older people are involved? Yeah, 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 yeah. primarily <clears throat> my stepmother in that regard. Um, who is the spitting image of Diego Forlan? Fun fact. Um but yeah, uh, how do I do video chat differently then? What, 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 I don't know, but how, apparently how adding it? screen share is an excuse for hanging out. Which again, brings me back to my point. Sure. Like, just fucking hang out with each other. Yeah, yeah, just go hang out in, you know, at five o'clock in the evening in the park in this, January. This is going to make me sound so arcane and so old. God. But until the age of 16, I didn't have a mobile phone. Yeah. If you called Because they weren't invented. <laughs> no, fuck off. But they might have been in a briefcase. Um, but if I called a friend and said, I'm going to come over, let's go play football. Yeah. Guess what I had to do? Go over and play go football. Go over. Yeah. Kids are too flaky because they got an excuse all the time to be like, I can't... Oh, are you really calling children snowflakes? No, of course I'm not. <laughs> Of course I'm not. But at least you had to stick to an appointment if you told someone you were going to be somewhere. I even like remember not having a mobile phone sort of age 13, uh, maybe younger than that, 9-11, and going around someone's house, knocking on their door, saying, I'll be back in half an hour to come get you to go play football. Because we didn't have a landline and things like that. Like That's just what was done. It's funny, like, you know, what age should, should kids have a mobile phone? My, um, my goddaughter uh, is 12. Her yep. elder sister is 15. See, that makes it right? hard immediately. All Tabitha does, I hope she doesn't listen to this show, <laughs> is post pictures of a boyfriend on Instagram. This is the 12-year-old. 15-year-old. And, and we were sat at, at a dinner table having some food and her and her boyfriend were just sending love hearts to each other. It's like, you probably don't need a mobile. You live like round the corner from each other. You spend a lot of time together. Like, just hang out. Dave, this is how young, <laughs> modern relationships are formed, mate. I'm so They old. could be together forever. It's very it's sweet. It's very, it's very sweet. sweet. But the love hearts were different colours. It was cute. Yeah, that is cute, man. I'm going to start sending you different colour love hearts now. <laughs> Come over and tell me you love me. Stop messaging me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, squad. We're going to hear all about squad. Apparently, we're not. We're not teenagers. <laughs> no, no. We will, we will hear that squad is a big thing. Let's try it out. Let's try squad out. Me, well, you, and Ryder. Ryder, producer Ryder, is um, under the age of twenty. He facetimes different than we did. Yeah. yeah Interesting enough, uh, he'll listen to this, so we can just mug him off now. Yeah. Uh, he's got a new car with his, with his with his girlfriend. Terribly excited about it. Was well, it red red Suzuki Swift? Oh no, he's from Essex, so. Hey, what's wrong with that? <laughs> um, last night he went swimming and then he wanted to go for a drive. Yeah. Right? Guess where he went for a drive? Go on. Mackie D's. He's like, oh yeah, it was really nice. We Mate, that's the classic oh. thing, isn't it? That is the classic. I mean, I don't know because I never, we don't drive, but every time a friend passed a test, like, we'll go McDonald's. That to is to just fair, the right passage. To be fair, he did turn around at me and said, I feel like I'm 18. Yeah. So he, yeah. he got that it was. I feel like I'm 18. How old is he? 22? 
Uh, 23? Yeah, not far. Yeah, 23, 24. He's young enough to, to, to Use, be under yeah. the cutoff for using video chat in a different way. And not look like an old weirdo on it. Yeah. Whereas we would, oh, yeah. in theory. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we hope you have a lovely week. Thanks for listening in. Our next show is with Avril Chester. Uh, she is the CEO of Cancer Central. Uh, so that's well worth listening for. She's um, very okay. health tech focused at the start of this year, aren't we? Oh, this, yeah. this is very different. This is like open source for community. Oh wow! Oh. It. Uh, and she's a cancer survivor herself. Oh nice! So it's it's a really worthwhile listen. So tune in for that on Thursday. Uh, but until then, have a lovely week. I don't know why I'm waving at you. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>